0: So we are continuing in 1 John. If you you want to open up and follow along there, that's where we will be. Uh, And in my last message, you may recall that I told you what I didn't consider to be too profound of a statement. But again, just something that we need to be reminded of that you are not an animal. You are a human. And because of that, you are distinct from the animal kingdom you are made in the image of god we are made in the image of god and, and i focus a lot on that because um, john last in our last passage john spent a lot of time talking about this big question of who is god and so we needed to sort of go well how come mankind asks these kinds of questions and it was because again of this reality that we're made in the image of god well likewise we have fellowship with God because we're made in his image. But I wanted to continue to go into that because we need to understand who we are uh, if we're going to be people who can walk in the light. Uh, Because the animal kingdom doesn't think about righteousness and wickedness. Uh, Instead, the animal, excuse me, they said mankind, we consider who we are. And so that's why I've titled today's message, Biblical anthropology. Uh, And for those unfamiliar with that term, the term biblical anthropology is the study of mankind. And our passage this morning, I believe, will give us um, a great understanding of what it is that is mankind, what is mankind's greatest weakness, and what is mankind's um, only victory over that weakness. So if you are able would you please stand for the rise? Uh, yeah, stand right. I can't talk anymore. Stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you. So, First John, chapter one, verses eight through ten. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You may be seated. Now, with the text there, let's look at the very first spot that this says, and it's in verse 8, and it says, if we say we have no sin, much like last week, Much like last week, we saw that John is going to use these if statements, these claim statements. If you say this, then that. And so this is one of the first ones. If we claim we are without sin, well, there's a big, tiny word right in the middle of that first sentence, sin. What is sin? we have to define that before we can go on because if I'm going to claim that I'm without sin I should obviously know what the heck I'm talking about and pretending to be all about and so simply put sin is missing the mark or to error In the simplest understanding we could do is that you try to do something and you fail to achieve it now we have to look and see, notice what he says in verse 9, If excuse me, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John now continues to make a bold claim that not only is this a problem for maybe young Christians or new Christians or, or people outside of even the Christian faith, but rather, it's everyone, because this is John talking, says that if we say we don't sin, we are deceiving ourselves which would mean he's including himself with the problem of sin. There we are. Which means sin is a problem for all people because John actually walked with Jesus. He was an apostle of Jesus. He was right there, and so he includes himself. So as an apostle or a mature believer, he still says he has sin. Paul is going to say something very similar in Romans 3.23. In Romans 3.23, Paul will write this, and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, because of these two clear passages, I mean, we could find others, and we'll actually look at other passages about sin, but nevertheless, right off the bat, we can understand this very clearly. All are with sin, and we all are impacted by said sin. So you, me, everyone around us, person to your left, person to your right, person behind you, person in front of you, whatever the case may be, sin. Now, The question that if we're missing the mark or failing to do something, what is it that we are failing to do? What mark or or who or what are we erroring against? Simply put, we miss the mark established by God. We miss the mark according to God. And it's not just what he's put out and maybe what he said personally, but again, it's his revelation. It's his command, or another way to look at it's his law that we have sinned or rebelled or failed to keep up too. So mankind has failed to do this. Let's consider then the first sin, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to sort of summarize what happens is we've already seen God has created the heavens and the earth. It's already been well established. But there's one command given, one law. Do not eat of a particular tree. Do not eat of its fruit. One particular tree that's in the garden. Now, we understand that most likely or theoretically Adam passed this command on to Eve because when the serpent comes up to her, slithers up next to her, She's aware of this and even references this command, whether or not it's perfect that we can argue that later, but nevertheless, she's able to recite it um, from some sort of memory. So as a serpent comes around to tempt her, when Eve takes the fruit and gives some to Adam to eat, this is not some minor infraction, right? Like we might have this moment, right, where we've lost our senses or we're at a group gathering and maybe someone lays a plate of food in front of you, you start eating, then you realize you look around, no one else has been served. You go, oops, I shouldn't be eating right now because we should wait for everyone. Right? That's a customary thing in our culture, right? That's how we do it. At least maybe it's maybe just me. Um, maybe that's just the house I grew up in, but again, it was customary. That's not the notion that we're getting to. The reality, the reality of what we're talking about here is something much bigger because this is a law given by God that establishes something that he has very clearly and directly commanded. It's because two chapters earlier, we get a very profound statement in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God. Those simple words, in the beginning, God, sets forth a, a reality that, that few today really, I think, understand. See, because what that says is that God is eternally God. Prior to creation, God was there. Prior to any human, to any creation, God has existed and existed. Perpetually. Eternally God. Eternally existent. And he wasn't created like we are. He just was self-existent. Now again, this should be mind-blowing because you... And I have a moment where we came into the world and existed. And we have memories of our life. We know what we went through, where we've come from. But God has always existed. I don't know how to fully comprehend God's eternal nature. How do you wrap your head around something, just someone, always being? It's a mind-blowing concept to my finite understanding. But nevertheless, this is what we see. And so we are created. And I address all this because it points to the nature of sin. As creatures made in the image of God, we are made to reflect Him. We're made to obey Him, know Him, be in relationship with Him. And God alone establishes reality for his creation which means our sin cannot be downplayed when we sin it is it is rebellion against god unlike other errors. It's it's not a minor, you know, oopsie doopy, you know, small little error. Right like when I misspoke about trying to ask you guys to stand, I actually haven't had a thing about how I write words wrong on a whiteboard in the classroom because I'm a terrible speller. Uh, Spell check is my greatest friend um, when I type out anything. Um, and obviously, you just heard me. I can't speak words very clearly, which is again, it's the great irony of God uh, that He puts men like me in the pulpit. But nevertheless. Uh, That's a minor error. Did I sin against God when I stumbled over telling you to or asking you to stand for the reading? No, that's not a sin against God. That's just a little misstep or oopsie, as you know, we might call them. However, we can't think of our sin in that light. It's not a minor thing. It is weighty. If we go back to the Romans passage we just looked at, consider what he said what paul said about it in romans 3:23 again said for all have sinned right we already established that and fall short of the glory of god so again it's not again some small like oops i made a mistake but no you've now fall short of the glory of god the created reality that you are in as a created being in the image of god you have now failed to measure up to god's glory You have now failed to be consistent with that which God has revealed and commanded. And again, this is something that is hitting all of us, impacting all of us. God is glorious. We are not. Hence, when we fall to sin, it's rebellion to God. But wait, there's more. Ephesians chapter 2 adds on to this understanding. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, if you're not picking up the thread of all of us being impacted by this, it's hitting us once again. But the bigger point that I want to draw to is the very first sentence, you were dead, In your trespasses, and since dead, not drowning, not just struggling a little bit, needing a little bit of help, needing that, like, someone to throw me the life preserver. No, 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 no. Dead. Incapacitated, completely without life. Dead. And see, this is the natural condition for those of us in sin, what our sin has done. Notice also what he said, by nature we are, we are nature by nature, children of wrath. God must be just. God is just. And so he has to deal with this, the weightiness of this sin. We can't, again, it's not a minor thing, it's a massive thing. And so we are called then to be under wrath because of our sin. God shows judgment to those in sin. He is righteous and we deal with, excuse me, and he must deal with our rebellion. He cannot passively ignore it. And we see the weightiness of sin once again in this passage. Now, we could go on and look at other places, Romans 5, Colossians 1, further examples that draw out this idea of being an enemy of God or being with, uh, having enmity with God or strife with God or, or whatever the other images that the Scripture uses, again, showing this reality that as enemies of God or under His wrath, it means that our sin has disconnected us from God completely driven us away from God. So if we go back to our Genesis 3 reference and we actually look at what, how that plays out, I think this will be an interesting point to look at. So Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve took of the fruit and after they've hid themselves from God and after he sort of um, gathers up all the guilty parties, this is what he says in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord said to the serpent, right, this was the tempter, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and from dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then he continues in verse 16 to the woman. He says this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So notice, again, the weightiness, the, the, how massive this issue is, that it's, again, not some little, oh, you made a little mistake, a little slap on the wrist, you're done. No, this is a weighty reality that must be judged not only to the participants of those who sinned and broke the command of God, broke the law of God, but also to the one who tempted. But then also notice its lasting impact in the world around it. They once dwelled in a garden where they didn't toil. There were no thorns. There were no thistles. Apparently, whatever process childbirth would have been was less severe. But now, because of these various things, we now see that there's a curse on all of creation. The cosmic order has been disrupted. Everything is impacted. Going back to Romans chapter 5 this time, in verse 12, this gives us a little bit of insight into this. Romans 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, right? We just read about that, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So once again, we see now this reality of this curse that all men, going forward mankind, right, is what we're talking about, is now divided from God. It's under this command, uh, excuse me, it's under the The judgment is under the wrath. It's all of these things that we've already looked at. In other words, this is what we would call being fallen. Mankind is fallen into sin. And this is the reality that we start to see. So there's no escape from sin. Sin impacts all of us. It impacts our whole self. It impacts everything else around us. And I believe the Baptist Catechism, uh, based on the the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, states it very well. It says this, All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Biblically speaking, therefore, This is the condition of mankind. Now, I don't quote the catechism here to say, well, because the catechism says it's true. Hopefully, you see what I've done here is that the catechism pulled this from Scripture. They summarize these various passages that I just brought up as well as others to get to this point because clearly, this is the thread that Scripture uses to describe man in his sinful state a weighty reality when we stop to consider how broken we are. And again, even broken isn't the best word because we already looked in Ephesians, we're dead to our sin. So, we continue on back to our original passage. Back to 1 John, verse 8. Still in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have no separation from God, deserving of the wrath of God, um, those various things that we looked at, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Essentially, what I'm trying to get at is if, basically, if you want to claim that you have none of that, which I just unpacked, none of that falling, disobeying God's command, and there's various things, you're self-deceived. We can all be self-deceived. Now, I, I can see how we can do this, because it's very easy for us to make justifications for our sin, thinking that maybe I'm not so bad because if I compare myself to Mr. fill-in-the-blank, right, I'm not so bad. You know, He maybe uh, does certain things, but I don't do those things, and I know maybe I've messed up, but it's not to the same level right? as Mr. fill-in-the-blank, our imaginary example person we want to use to go, well, look at him or her, you know, you decide, You know, I'm a good person, you know. However, Mr. So-and-so is not our standard. God is. I'm not judged by Mr. Phil-in-the-blank. I'm judged by the law of God. And like I said in my last message of those who walk in the darkness, they can still do good things from time to time, but again, it's... Where their heart really truly resides, uh, it's the, they do them out of the darkness of their desire, and so that even if our fictitious Mister Phil in the Blank is a very swell guy, he's still in sin, and he sin keeps him from God. Therefore, to try to use him as a measure is just. Me, again, trying to make up my own rules to this game. Instead, we must conform to the truth of God. Once again, I would like to turn us to Romans to get some further insight on this. In chapter 1 of Romans, starting in verse 18, Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all It's plain, God, is evident. But man suppresses the truth. Suppression, right? It's to press it down, to just just keep putting pressure on it, to keep it submerged as if you can't see it or deal with it. And then... Once I've done that, I've taken truth, reality, and I've shoved it down to the depths. Maybe I'm even standing on it. I can then proclaim, ah, I look out and I see and I'm wise and I create my own thoughts, my own realities, my own truth. In all reality, all I've done is propelled myself into darkness and I run from truth. See, mankind does not Seek truth, not God's truth, but they seek what they want to be true. So again, this, this reality, Paul says it here, we suppress the truth, or in our, our text, right? We deceive ourselves, right? We either we come up with a fake measuring stick of someone else and go, well, compared to so-and-so, I'm fine, but instead, or we come up with these other systems and thinking that we become really deep and profound when really all we've done is sought out what we truly want. So back to 1 John, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now this is Again, once again, a beautiful reality because we get to get into the nature of God here. We get to see the truth because God is faithful and just. God is faithful and just. Faithful is the idea of someone being worthy of trustworthiness, someone you can depend on, someone who's loyal, always there. And the text says that he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he will do this, again, on the premise of if. But how can God do that? We've looked completely, here they are still, the the depth of our fallen nature. We're in complete rebellion. We're dead to our sins. How then can he cleanse us? How can he redeem us? How can he do this? Well, the short answer is because of the blood of Christ and the act of redemption in Christ when he took our place on the cross. However, the very passages we looked at earlier, I cut short. Let's go back to Romans 3.23 then, and we see that it says, for all of sin to fall short of the glory of of God. Yes, but then keep going, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. So do you see that? Yes, we are this mess, but... God, in his grace and his act of redemption, offers a propitiation. And that's a big word. But propitiation is the understanding or the concept of appeasing wrath. The wrath that was due us, like our passage said in Ephesians, now shows us that he has paid that wrath or taken on that wrath because he is the one who bore the punishment on the cross, not us. Since I mentioned Ephesians, let's go ahead and go back to that one, Ephesians chapter 2, and notice how Paul continues that thread because in verses 1 through 3, we were left with a very terrifying reality. So again, just in case you forgot it, here it is, it's uh, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked on the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now there's a lot there, but again, he made us alive. We're no longer dead. And again, the wrath we've dealt with And now, again, take the idea of being lifted up into the heavenly places with God. Does that sound like we're divided from God any longer? No, the answer. No, clearly not. God has reconciled, redeemed us, brought us back into a proper position in Christ. Not because of anything I've done, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything that we could ever obtain, but because of Christ. Christ's. Christ's perfect life, Christ Christ taking our place on the Christ cross, Christ resurrecting those three days later, redeeming us, curing the fall. Well, since we've cleaned up all the other passages we looked at, let's go back to Romans 5 then. And in verse 12, we saw, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before... The... Excuse me, I want to jump down. Yeah, I want to jump to 15. So if you... Romans five fifteen it says, but this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... In Adam. Much more by the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So here we have it. That yes, just like Adam then introduced the fall, the second Adam, or Christ, redeems and brings justification for all those who confess. And so we have this beautiful reality of who we are. Yet there's one final comment. Point that we need to look at here, and that is what John says at the beginning of verse 9, if we confess our sins. Now, this may seem contradictory, because if only God can redeem us, it's only the work of God that can do this. Why? Why is confession then critical to this whole process? Why is confession a major point for us to even consider? Because confession is the recognition of the truth and then to conform to the reality of God right, if we confess, that means I understand what it is I've done. I understand that apart from the work of Christ, I am dead. I am uh, disconnected from God. I am fallen. I am uh, supposed to be a child of wrath. I understand this because this is what confession is. It's me looking at the reality of the cosmos, reality of what sin has done through Adam and impacted all of mankind. And it's me going, okay, I can't do anything about it. So confession now leads me to Admitting that I need a Savior. See, this is the opposite of being self-deceived. It's the exact opposite. It's me realizing the reality that God has created a world, given a law, and we've failed to live up to it, and we need now redemption and hope in Christ. So by confession, then I now conform to the reality And proclaim the reality of God's goodness and His love towards us. And so, again, confession, therefore, is the exact opposite of being self deceived. He concludes in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we have made him a liar, and his word is not in us. I feel like here we are just summarizing what we've already established very clearly, that God is the one who establishes reality, not you or I. I don't get to dictate to anyone what is real, what is true, what is Existent, what is non existent, whatever the case may be, you don't get to play that game either. It is only God's business. And so I've titled intentionally this whole sermon series called Walking in the Light. And so far, through chapter one, there's been a heavy emphasis. on who God is and who we are, how our sin is impacted, how our sin keeps us from this, how we're supposed to be in fellowship with God, how we're supposed to walk with God and know God. Because what I don't want to leave us with is is having a a bunch of to-dos, right? Because sometimes in popular Christianity today or, or throughout the ages, we've sort of tried to boil Christian faith down to a checklist, a series of like, well, if I'm doing this and I'm doing it right. If, right, if I attend church, you know, most every Sunday, and if I read my Bible for X number of minutes a day, and I spend this amount of time in prayer every day, then that means, okay, everything's sort of good, and I'm going to be fine. I'm not discounting those things, obviously, I think all of those are very good, but we can't boil our faith down to a series of to-do's, Because our faith isn't a series of to-do's. Our faith is truly based on all of this that I unpacked, that apart from Christ, prior to Christ, I was exactly what the text says. You were exactly what the text says. Someone who was dead to sin. Someone who deserved wrath. Someone who had no desire to know God and someone who created their own reality. You're self-deceived prior to Christ, but thanks be to God that that's not where he leaves it. He intervened on our behalf for all of us at some point to come to know him. And so I, well, I assume we're sitting here today because we confess Christ, we know we need him, we're dependent on him, not just for that big, okay, take away that curse, but then in the daily, every day, to get up and put one foot in front of the other to want to be in obedience and to be in fellowship and to be just in his love. I mean, think of how easy it is for us to just close off into the wall and forget what's going on. But instead, because of this, because we know God, because he's opened our eyes, he's continuing to do this work and we must confess that we need God every moment to enable us to do whatever is the next thing that's in front of us. So again, I don't want to just go, don't know what I did. Sorry about that. I'll just blame Callan. Um, but, uh, So yeah, we don't want to boil this down to this thing we must do, checklist mentality, but instead want it to become, if I'm going to walk in the light, what that means is again to be in fellowship with God and to want to then walk in the light because of what God has done and how he's transformed me. That's why I want to honor God and love God. And so... Hopefully, as we then go forward and and continue on in this book, that will be the foundation in which we look through what it means to walk in the light. That we will understand it that way because we know we need Christ in every moment of that step and of that walking with him. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, let's, let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, that that you brought us here to hear this message. I thank you, Lord, for using me to proclaim this message. God, I pray that you will encourage us to walk, not out of obligation or out of uh, thinking we can earn our salvation to some capacity, but rather because we understand your goodness and your grace, and so we desire to be with you because you've reconnected our fellowship. You've rebuilt what was broken, and you've redeemed us and justified us to this day. So Lord, I pray uh, for the the people here that you will continue to help us walk, that you will give us strength and aid as we need, and that Lord, you will just continue to sanctify us each and every moment of our life. So Lord, I thank you for the work that you've done here, and I pray that you will continue so. pray this all in Christ's name, Amen.